In October of 2017, Eric Hargan, the acting U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services, declared the opioid epidemic a public health emergency. For a little background, opioids are a class of drugs usually prescribed as painkillers, and studies have shown that they can be highly addictive. Because of social, political, and legal implications, this is a really tricky public health topic to tackle. Substance abuse and addiction are often stigmatized, and people who use drugs are often blamed for their illness. Right now, this issue is being dealt with through several downstream means of prevention, which means they're about treating existing disease and reducing death. And in the case of substance abuse, this looks like availability and use of life-saving drugs like naloxone, which can counteract an overdose. Since the year 2000, there have been over 300,000 overdose deaths involving opioids. In 2016, more than 2 million Americans had an addiction to opioids. I could rattle off statistics for you all day, but that doesn't feel as meaningful to me as hearing from actual people about how this epidemic has touched their actual lives. It's been a while, so an extra special thank you for joining me on Care to Share, where the personal is clinical. I'm Jesse Greenfield, and I facilitate these dialogues. Today, we're bringing together a clinician who cares for people with substance abuse issues and one of her patients in recovery to speak about working and living with addiction. Their conversation gets highly personal and emotional, and I can't thank these people enough for their vulnerability and openness when speaking about something so challenging and so sensitive. Some of this conversation may be hard to hear, and I just wanted to give you a heads up that there are mentions of physical abuse, violence, abortion, and obviously substance abuse in today's conversation. I hope you get as much out of it as I did. My name is Dr. Rainey Sokol, um, and I work at Cambridge Health Alliance, and I help with a lot of the addiction work here. I actually work in a family medicine residency training center, and I serve a bunch of different roles. I see patients individually in the clinic, and I also um, supervise the residents, and I teach the curriculum on addiction and pain. Um, and then I run group visits for patients who struggle with um, addiction. Um, and I've been doing that now for like about six years. Um, I'm board certified in family medicine and in addiction medicine. Um, and I actually, when I started doing this five years ago, I had no idea what I was doing. I barely <laughs> knew what Siloxone was. And then my patients said, the first thing when I when I started our first group, patients turned to me and said, Dr. Sokol, we gotta get you a drug dictionary. Um, and since then it's been history and I've learned, I've learned a lot from the people I work with and, and my patients have taught me a lot. So here I am. <laughs> cool, thank you. I can definitely just add to that. Um, the way that Dr. Sokol makes you feel comfortable enough where you can communicate on that level is what I know has kept me here because communication to me is the biggest thing with at least a provider or a doctor of some sort um, because if you can't communicate them, then there's really no point whatsoever. Uh, physically or mentally. So I come from Western Mass, so it's different altogether. How uh, so? What do you mean? I guess I could say that my addiction started in Western Mass. Around 18, I was in a car accident. I had broken my nose. They had to do surgery to re-break my nose. 
So they had put me on Percocets, but again, I was 18 years old. So after that prescription ran out, I continued to realize that it didn't only help with the physical pain, but it did help with the emotional pain as well. Um, the problem with my storytelling is that in anything that I bring up, it kind of spiders into a lot of different things. So this could be a long <laughs> thing. So long story short, um, I came out here a little over 10 years ago to the South End and I was in a halfway, it's a Salvation Army. Um, I didn't have a choice. I was literally driven down here by my grandmother who, um, they didn't even have a bed available, um, but they let me stay because she wasn't taking me back. So they did. I was there for a little over a year. Um, when you don't have an option or a choice, you have to do those things. But the healthcare again, it wasn't a main interest or a concern for me at the time because I felt as if I was just getting by at that time where if I went to go even get myself about like really evaluated and checked out I would be in over my head of where to even begin sports the whole just abuse in general um so I did um yeah I mean it keeps going from there so I moved to Winthrop to a sober house after that um I got a job working as a baker over at Emerson College where I met my significant other from 10 years ago. Mm. Yeah. Um, was there for a while. Unfortunately, that ended, um, don't know really the best way of putting it. Um, um, it, as you were bringing up feminist things, it was a situation with a food service director that was an uncomfortable situation that unfortunately led to him getting fired. So I had to leave because it was, for obvious reasons, not a comfortable environment after that. So I moved on from there. Yeah, I found out I was pregnant a couple after I actually had a seizure out of nowhere. And my significant other son actually saved my life by sticking a wallet in my mouth so Whoa. I didn't swallow my tongue. Wow. Yeah. So um, I woke up in the emergency room, and they told me I was pregnant, but I was already, like, four or five months. I didn't have a clue. Oh, oh my, my God. God. Yeah. Um, but I had a IUD, so I had just had gotten it out, and so my periods were all kind of oh. messed up. So I was kind of like, oh, that's normal. It was from an abortion I had to get, so it was like kind of explainable so I kind of just yeah yeah so once that happened again no explanation for the seizure but um I had her and uh, that is kind of where the story I guess turns um I stopped but the plan was not to keep my daughter my daughter actually was being put up for adoption mm -hmm. um my choice but I'm also adopted so it's a long again like I said in every aspect that I say there's kind of a whole story or meaning behind it um to the point where I literally signed my rights over after picking a family out for her but last minute her father chose and I do it together but my problem with the health providers have been honesty um I have been so honest where it's gotten me in trouble so DCF came to my life because... Wait, sorry, what is that? Uh, Department of Children and Families. So unfortunately, because I had said I was smoking marijuana 
and that there could have been a chance in the beginning, you know, first trimester, because I didn't know I was pregnant, I could have taken a Percocet or something. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so that was when they said they had to report it and that they had to, um, I once I left the hospital, I couldn't bring her home and I couldn't be there when she got home because she was in the NICU for Thrush. So the problem was, though, that, um, again, with the healthcare system, is that I had only a positive urine for marijuana. And no detox will take you for uh, marijuana, you know, withdrawal. Really? No. Oh. No. You don't detox from marijuana, so yeah. they won't... Re- There's so many people who need beds. There's no way they're going to hold you a bed for marijuana and I'm on a time crunch now because my daughter's coming home from the hospital and I have to literally I'll never forget the receptionist on the phone told me you need to go out and get high to have drugs in your system to be able to get a bed wow and oh that God. was my only choice I mean I took a purpose that it wasn't oh why did you want to go into the hospital I didn't have a choice the DCF mandated me to do a 30-day program before I could go home so I did yeah, I did 21 days, 22 days, and that was it. Um, I mean, I all of it happened for a reason. I'm glad that it did because it's brought me to where I am now. But that trust in the um, provider and in with doctors, and I, I never went back to a doctor. I couldn't tell you for how long, to the point of where I've actually made myself sick. Um, I have Crohn's. I have all these now new where it brought me to CHA um, because I was hospitalized in January. I had a, uh, my whole intestines were inflamed. I had to be on steroids. The whole nine years, Crohn's, they didn't know exactly. They wanted to go and do a biopsy and see exactly what was going to be the next step, but that didn't end up happening yet. But that's what brought me here to CHA. And um, again, kind of no choice um, because I have to keep up with my physical and mental health. So, but to come to a, an establishment of where it does provide mental, physical, and again, the communication being a huge thing and being able to talk, you know, and be trust. <laughs> so, yeah. Can I ask a question? That, that's this whole thing. Please okay. ask all the questions. Because you were saying that it was the trust. Oh, yeah. From the, What was it that was not... I think I heard it, but I'm not sure. I just wanted you to clarify. The, yeah, what was it that felt so distrusting about the yeah, that experience for you? Because there's a lot of parts that I like. I'm not saying like when I first came out to the south end of Boston, I went out of my way to go to BMC to purposely red flag myself. Obviously, you know what that means. Um, so that if I go to any establishment, I don't. Doctors obviously know what that means. So. I purposely did the things in anything that I had done to the fullest of my ability. So what I've always been taught is to be honest and honesty is the best policy. Um, But when that's thrown back in your face that it's not by a doctor, um, it was kind of uh, eye opening. Yeah, are you talking about having to get to take a Percocet in order to get into detail? No, I'm just saying trust in general, just saying... Um, being honest about everything in general, I whenever, guess. Whenever you talk about your addiction. Suffering. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. Because once you say that, it's a stigma. It's a, you feel judged. Yes, most definitely. Like I told you with, uh, what, a couple of weeks ago, we had a problem with my prescription because they were trying to tell me. And this is, I mean, this is a numerous amount of times. I'm not saying here. I'm just saying in general, a lot of situations have happened where the pharmacy here was trying to tell me that I, you know, 
even if it was on their shelf, they can't say to Walgreens. It was this big, big miscommunication where, in a long story short, it doesn't matter, you know, how you explain things or what you say or how you say it. That stigma will always be with you. And then even in my records. But that was my point of red flagging myself is that I wanted doctors to see everything and to know everything. I mean, again, it's not helpful if they don't. But I also had severe consequences because of it. Mostly you're their daughter. Yeah. I mean, I guess, but at the same time, I think it was probably just most hurtful because it was with my daughter. You know, a lot of people say, you know, you can pick your situations, but if you don't have options, you don't really get to pick those situations. Well, it's interesting you use the term red flagging. Yeah. Because I've never heard that term before, and it makes me think like you're like, I don't know, I just like, I I just envision this, Mm -hmm. like, you're just like, you feel like you have to be this, um, put a target on yourself or something, Mm -hmm. and and that's, I don't know, it feels so icky. Um, Because, I mean, all you're doing is is talking about who you are as a person. Right. And, um, we all have we all have stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just it's, I haven't heard that phrase before. It was a long time ago, and I remember even living it because I come from a small town. So even coming to the city, I remember looking out the window, and it was like New York City. And um, a lot of the terms, I felt the same way, and that's why I laughed when you said you had to start writing a book with certain terms that people use because I it was the same way. The repetitiveness of having to re-explain and re-explain and re-explain, <clears throat> and then before the doctor even walks into the room. You already know the way they're thinking about it. Exactly. So what's the difference? Once someone knows that I'm taking, I don't know, Suboxone, that, that's an automatic. It doesn't matter. I've been on it for nine years, almost ten years. Really? Wow. Oh my God, yeah. So, but it doesn't matter. But that's still, you know, it's everyone's opinion. It doesn't matter. Everyone's going to have one, so. I feel like everybody at this point in their life knows somebody who struggles with addiction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, at least in my view of the world, it's kind of becoming normalized to some extent where, mm-hmm. you know, I struggle with addiction. I'm on a medicine. Mm-hmm. I struggle with diabetes. I'm on insulin. Yeah. I struggle with hypertension, mm-hmm. high blood pressure. I'm on a medicine. I struggle with back. You know, it's just... I know it's reality, but it pains me to hear. I mean, I know it's reality, and I know, and I don't know what it feels like. You know, I don't know what it feels like. Um, and every time you say something to somebody, you feel all you always feel judged. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, will it change? How can it change? And or if people are talking about it more, does it become more of a normal thing? Um, you know, ten years ago, we didn't hear people talking about suboxone. Um, we didn't hear people talking about addiction as a chronic disease. No. Um, I think in the, right now, it's more so depression. It's okay to come out and say that you're depressed, and that you know it's starting there. And uh, that's maybe, a good point. maybe addiction a little bit, um, just because it's getting a little bit more. I think under control the best way, but. You, like you were just saying, it was something that was on actually the podcast or something else that you had said. It was like everyone's addicted to something, whether it be caffeine or <laughs> sugar or whatever it is. It's still, it's just, I guess, the length that you would go to, to get it, I guess, is really the difference between all of us. But I don't think that's really ever going to go away. 
That's an interesting point that you make about depression. Yeah, I, I like that's more. That started to change. It's like yeah. everyday conversation. People be like, "Oh, I go to my therapist." You know, yes. what I mean? it's, it's like, like a yeah. great thing now, like yeah. to go and do therapy. Yep. It used to be like you see. Yes, a exactly. I know, and now that you're like, crazy. It's like, why don't you see a therapist? Exactly, <laughs> it yeah. is. Yep. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's a good point because it might be an entry point into having to normalizing some of these things that a lot of people deal with, and it's just part of life. And mm-hmm. good for you for getting help and getting treatment. Yeah. Um, but that's the biggest thing is like people wanting to. That was what I could just see. People, you can see people being forced to do it. You have to want to do it and not really even have. I hate to say it, but not um, have a choice sometimes. But still, if people don't have choices, they still just run away. You know, so you don't know. Do you want to speak maybe a little bit about why you got into this field? Good question. Um, why did I get into this field? Well, honestly, I didn't know much about addiction. When I, so I did, I just my background is, you know, I went to, um, I finished high school, went to undergraduate, ended up in medical school, not really sure what kind of doctor I wanted to be. I always loved, like, I love relationships with people and I I really liked primary care like the preventive way of looking at things I ended up doing a family residency program in California and I didn't get any I really didn't get much training in addiction um not that it wasn't a great program but we just wasn't it wasn't a thing um and then I came here to do a fellowship um and it, it, it was clearly a thing. We were kind of, Cambridge Healthline at the time was like, at least this site, we had to start prescribing Suboxone. And there was such a need for it. It was clearly, I mean, we were seeing it every day, but we weren't doing it. My belief has always kind of been like, um, it's okay if I don't know what I'm doing. If it, like, if it, the the greater good, what's the, what's the greater, like, to me, the alternative was like, well, somebody is either going to not get treatment and they're going to be on the street and using, or we're going to provide this life-saving medication. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I felt like, you know what, the benefits outweigh the risk. So I had a lot of mentors around me, I had a lot of um, people who could help coach and guide, and I learned. Um, and we just kind of started doing it, and it felt great, and it felt like we were meeting a need that needed to be met. So, I mean, I guess my philosophy is always like, I want to do something that I feel like other people can't do. Um, and like, if so, if five other people can do something and do it just as well as me, fine. Let those five people do it and do it, do it. If I feel like I could bring something that other people can't do, then I'm going to jump into it because it's an opportunity. And I know, I just know myself that like I make stuff happen and um, I move things forward. And I knew, I knew I, I had the capabilities, even if I didn't have like the actual knowledge. So um, I developed the knowledge over the years. Um, but it, it felt like really, it felt like we were doing good stuff. We were helping people who otherwise wouldn't get help. Um, and then the way we do things here is we have a really a team-based approach. You know, it's not just me doing the work. We have nursing, we have medical sense, we have front desk. It's a team approach and it feels good. It feels like we're a team and we care about, you know, that some of the, the, the funnest times we have, you're not here for this, but after we have group, we sit around, we talk about how group went as a team. We talk about patients, we figure out how we can support them. It just feels like we're doing good care, you know, like we 
have an opportunity to, I don't know, we, we talk about patients and how much we worry about them, how much we care about them. It just comes from a place of like good heartedness and we love it. We look forward to it every week. Our team talks about one is group, you know, one is group. Um, Cause for us, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel about coming to group, but we love group. I mean, to us, it's like, you know, it, it just, yeah, it just feels like this is why I went into medicine. Um, and, and I learn every day. I learn from the people that are in group. Um, I learn from the people I'm working with. Um, so it, yeah, it just, it kind of, and to me, it also goes back to the fundamentals of, of medicine. You know, like as a doctor, I'm taught to like, well, you have to treat somebody's diabetes and you have to treat somebody's heart failure. You have to treat somebody's depression. But the reality is people are not going to be able to treat any of that stuff if you're struggling with an addiction, right? Like you have to go back to the basics. Like, yeah, yeah. People have to take care of themselves first in order to treat their Crohn's disease, in order mm-hmm. to treat their other stuff. If you if you don't have that basic foundational, you know, ability to get out of bed and, and live your life, then you can't do all these other things. So to me, we're kind of missing the boat if we, if we start focusing on like all these other things when we just need to meet some basic foundational needs. So that's kind of where I've been with this. You probably didn't know any of that stuff about me. (laughs) Mm -mm. Mm -mm. But that's like the biggest thing. Like I said, it's like having all of those things and being in communication. Like they even have a a portal of um, an app of where literally you can send messages to um, anyone that is on the team, you know, for your therapist, your suboxone doctor, your PCP, your nurse practitioner. I mean, the list goes on. And literally, it's like she keeps saying the team thing. There's so many people that will call and call and call, <laughs> excuse me, until they literally even get a hold of you <laughs> or know what's going on or what the next thing is. And that's what kind of keeps you keep going too. Um, that's good to hear that actually. But no, it is. It's huge. It is. And that comfortableness that you make us feel that's why we keep coming back and you're understanding with a lot of things where you're not too lenient where it's you know laxative but where it's you know not so strict where we don't feel comfortable enough to talk to you and honest enough to get something done that's awesome. I'm glad you feel like that. And, you know, the thing is just, too, we have, I mean, I think you utilize a lot of things. Uh, you're connected to our nurse. You're connected to our therapist. Mm-hmm. You're connected to, I think, our social worker. Um, the housing yeah, person yeah, you got yeah, yeah. connected with. So, I mean, I think you're also, you, you know, you're being proactive and utilizing a lot of stuff, too. But yeah. at the same time, there are many doctors, if not all in my past, who either said that they will do it or and haven't delegated or actually done it or have never even done it at all. You know, there's a big difference of following through and actually um, it was something I had mentioned in group that I have a housing appointment with Malden Housing and it was the day after I got a phone call from the housing coordinator here at CHA. So it was like she had reached out to them to talk to me that there was a simpler way of doing something that saved me time, energy, and effort. Did it end so, up saving you time? Yes. Okay. Good. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. Most now you want to put me on the eighth. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the eighth. Yes. See? Um, yeah. that, that's that's great. I yes. think that's what it's right. Yes. Here should be. Yes. <laughs> I mean, sure, but it's know, not. In fairness, though, I mean, I don't know what situations have been back in the past, but in Malden in particular, this clinic is very well resourced. I mean, we have case managers, we have social workers, mm-hmm. we have people we can we can say, hey, can you call this patient? Not every place has that, mm-hmm. you know. So um, I do feel like we're lucky right. that we can p- help mm-hmm. people because if, if we didn't have that, like, I wouldn't know how to help you with your housing. But that's not so true, though, because these other hospitals and may may not have as many 
options as you guys, but they still have a lot of the same that they could yeah. do or direct you in some direction and not just kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, blowing in the wind, you know, kind of thing. That's good to have follow-up. Huge, yeah. yeah. And communication. I think one of the things you said, and this might be a cultural thing, I might be changing with time, but you said that I, it was a really nice <laughs> comment about me, but something like I accept people for what's going on. But I think, I mean, to me, like addiction is all about honesty, like recovery, I should say, is all about honesty. Mm-hmm. And like, um, if people are going to do well in, in recovery, they have to be honest with what's going on and talk about it and be vulnerable and be willing to get support. And like, if we don't set that type of environment, then what are we doing? Like, mm-hmm. we don't want people to have conversations that are not about real, about life and stuff, you know? So to me, having a conversation, you know, when we, whenever we have people come in to start group, the first thing I say is, you know, we want you to be honest. We're not going to kick you out of group. Mm-hmm. We just want you to be honest mm-hmm. because, yeah, I mean, how? I mean, there, there's there are some clinics that take more of an abstinence like only approach, and where any type of relapse is considered, eh, and you mm-hmm. have to be kicked out. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I think I think the some of the theory behind that is that what well, we're trying to protect the other the overall group. If some people are using, it's going to be hard for the whole group to to go forward. So there is a rationale for that, but there's also this kind of more harm reduction or relapse prevention approach where it's like you know we know we know relapse is part of addiction we know that you know you go through periods of recovery you go through periods of relapse and if we're not supporting that then we're not really able to help patients do well and I mean my whole idea is let's just create an open honest group because I mean really and when at least for me I see my role when I feel like we have a good group it's like I don't really see much because you guys are supporting each other and that's the whole point of group it's like you're talking to each other you're sharing experience you're sharing advice you're sharing experiences that only you could know and and, and really communicate to other people Mm -hmm. um and it's very different when you give each other advice and when I try to give it to you because like I mean if I tell you to delete your drug dealer's phone number you're like okay whatever Dr. Yokel you know (laughs) but if you tell each other it's it's much more powerful you know and I think that kind of environment where you feel um honest with each other and you can support each other that to me is like what makes people do well that is a big thing though um i grew up Mm. in pleasantville like we don't talk about things that are wrong let alone addiction and i was adopted so there were like kind of strikes where against me where it was don't get me wrong i get it i totally understand like people's first instinct when you hear those things oh that must be you know not the best family or whatever Mm. you know But we didn't. We didn't talk about that. And, you know, um, their idea of getting help or whatever was one time to detox and that's it Mm -hmm. um, kind of thing. So I think it kind of depends also of how you're brought up Mm -hmm. because being secretive and that also held me back. But then when I came out here and I was just, you know, telling all that was when it started to come back at me Mm -hmm. and I totally stopped. Stop talking or being honest or even getting any help whatsoever. Because when you're honest and those consequences are so severe in some situations, you felt shut down. Oh, yeah. But that's the way 
I never talked about it because that was the way that I was kind of brought up, I guess, is my long point. In some people's situations is all I'm saying. Being brought up, being secretive about it, or not talking about it. And And when you finally tried to, you felt that it was just shoved back in your face. Yeah, most definitely. But if it wasn't, I don't know if I necessarily would have gotten off the help that I have gotten told to today. So. so you seem, it's interesting the way you're explaining it, because you always seem ambivalent, meaning you're really not sure if it was a good decision to be so open about it or not, because in some ways... No, exactly. You felt you felt like the system was so, mm-hmm. uh, what's the word? Um, Failing. Judging mm-hmm. and not helping, but at the same time, if you didn't if you didn't be open and honest, then you wouldn't have gotten the help you needed. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And that's why I kind of wanted in some way to be able to participate because I can see both sides, (laughs) excuse me, of it in some way. But it's not the best healthcare system for the most part. When you say you can see both sides of it, what do you mean by that? Um, That there are very good points to it and there's also some very negative sides to it. To getting help or being honest? No, 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 just being honest in general. Being honest about your your Exactly. But also, there's different stages because I'm also here now where it's completely honest. I don't care if it really bites me in the ass or not because I've already been there and I've already done it. So, developed a hard shell. Yeah. You're great. That, that's interesting because it's like you've set your standards so low that like <laughs> yeah anybody For that's like rem- remotely right is helpful we're like thank you guys yes <laughs> oh yeah yeah interesting maybe we're we're reaching a semi-natural conclusion if there's anything else you want to like ask each other or any like final statements in your view of the world if you could give uh, any future doctor that interacts with you a piece of advice what would it be not to judge a person by their medical records um, necessarily I guess because I don't the medical records are not showing that I went to a halfway house for a, over a year it doesn't show I went to a sober house for six months. It doesn't show the meetings I went to. It doesn't show the work that I've done or anything along those lines. Because I've already touched on everything else, you know, the feeling comfortable and the honesty thing and everything else, so. It doesn't show all the work that you've put in. It just, it, yeah. it's, one, it's one label and it, and it makes. Of, yeah. In a way, be open, willing, and yeah, understanding all of those things. Mm-hmm. It's like they're on this level, these doctors, mm-hmm. and it's looking down at you. Mm-hmm. That's just a normal person. That's not even someone with addiction or any other mental health disorders or physical issues. This is a normal person. So it's like coming not even down to your level, but being, you know. To have a conversation and feel like you can talk back in kind of a way where it helps, you know? So. Spread that message. Yes. Spread Share it with the world. Stream it on the Yes, the rooftop. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Good to hear that. I, I just wonder, too, like, if physicians realized how they came across 
Mm. With that, because I, I think a lot of people just aren't. I don't know. I, I, I could be wrong, but I, don't, I think a lot of people aren't aware of how they come across. Yeah. How do you like negotiate your like own self reflexivity? Like, how do you, after a group or after an appointment, kind of be like, ah, oh, how, how was I in that? Yeah. And, and in reality, is we don't really get feedback. Like, who's in the room with us? It's me and a patient. It's not like the patients but like, you know, you really sucked today. <laughs> but you see it every week in group. You know what I mean? There's always at least, you know, a handful of people there every week, you know, who need and want or who are not forced to be there, by the way, you know. So, you know, it's uh, it's to show that obviously they're committed and they want to come for some point. They wouldn't be if they didn't have faith in you in some way. Well, yeah, I, don't, I, I appreciate it. I don't yeah. think it's me. I think it's the, um, I think it's the cult, the feeling of the group, you know, and I think a lot right. of, I think, you know, our nurse is a big player in that. Um, Just a little. If you think. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and no, I mean, I think it, it is kind of a culture of, uh, this is what we do and this is how we practice and this, this is all important to all of us. Um, yeah. And that word spreads very quickly amongst people who are the patient really? side. Most definitely. If someone, you're, friend, you're friendly with the people that obviously are going to be not maybe having the same issues, but obviously who do the same things in that way. And they're going to tell you, you know, oh, I've been there. You know, don't go there. Or no, they're going to, you know, that kind of thing. Interesting. It, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, word passes very fast. Well, that's good. We got a good reputation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you yeah. so much. Oh my gosh, thank you. Yeah, this is really nice of you to come. Yeah. And you to oh come God, all yeah. this whole way. I know, I know so far. I know Walden is. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's aspirational. Thanks for listening to Care to Share. If you or someone you know is struggling with substance abuse or you want to learn more about this topic, there are resources and background information at caretosharepodcast.wordpress.com. If you're not as lucky as our patient in recovery to get to work with someone as awesome as Dr. Randy Sokol at Cambridge Health Alliance, you can still access resources on the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA's, website, or contact their national hotline at 1-800-622-HELP or 4357. I hope this conversation encourages you to share your own story engaging with the healthcare system with people you care about. Maybe, as a start, you can share this story with the people you care about. As always, thanks to Caleb Martin Rosenthal for the melodious tunes and to Tessa Abaddon for that sweet, sweet visual. Thanks for listening to Care to Share, where the personal is clinical.